1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Garki uh, from the New Books Network, and I have today with me Dr. Leela uh, Nethi. Uh, she is a professor at Oriental College, uh, Los Angeles, and she is with me here today to talk about her new book, Colonial Law and in India and the Victorian Imagination. Welcome, Dr. Nethi.
0: Thank you so much, Garki. It's my pleasure to be with you today.
1: Um, Like always, uh, my first question is about the genesis of this book. Uh, Can you tell me what inspired you to write this book?
0: So I've always been interested in the law. Uh, When I was an undergrad, I was headed towards law school and I thought it would be a practicing attorney as a career, Uh, but I became much more interested in literature along the way and decided instead to pursue a graduate degree in English. Uh, But I never lost that interest in the law. And in particular, I was always fascinated by the ways in which um, law and literature seem to enable one another and often work in tandem with one another. And um, during... The, the graduate school years, I was um, interested in questions of um, the South Asian diaspora in particular. And for example, I was interested in how indentureship contracts were um, sort of, you know, narratively constructed or how um, the narrative of the contract it, itself was a, a kind of both legal and literary um, production or invention. Right. Um, and how um, in a lot of ways, the law was always a kind of act of imagination and how, um, conversely, literary texts often carried with them a kind of um, impetus towards creating norms or um, casting normative uh, narratives. And so that intersection between sort of rules and and literary uh, production has always been sort of at the back of my mind um, Incidentally, my my grandfather was actually a lawyer in colonial India, and uh, he had a collection of uh, Moore's Indian Appeals, and that was my first introduction to to that uh, you know those volumes. And I, I would you know spend summers reading through some of those cases, and and always found them so fascinating because they really resonated with so many of our contemporary concerns as well. And, and this is something that I try to to work out um, in in the book as well. You know the ways in which they are sort of um, E- these legal histories and, and legacies continue to haunt the narratives we cast in the present as well. Again, both literary and and legal.
1: So. Yes, uh, and this leads to uh, the really the title of the book because in one part is colonial law in India and the other is Victorian imagination. And you talk about uh, in I mean uh, diverse ways in which we could put these planes together. Can you can you talk about uh, a little uh, what what are the major ways in which we can compare these two fields?
0: So um, yeah, I mean, as the title suggests, the the idea is to um, and and this is kind of a framework that I employ throughout the book uh, to read the law and literature uh, alongside one another, and really to think about both the law and literature, again, as acts of imagination, right? The ways in which, um, narrative interpretation, um, you know, questions of, of character and voice and, and, you know, um, analogy metaphor, all of these things that we think of as sort of typically literary, uh, really play a part in constructing the law as well. And, um, especially the ways in which the law kind of becomes a narrative for organizing colonial life. Right. So it, it, in a way, um, the law is, is sort of the, the overarching, um, construct that allows certain things to happen or not happen within, you know, the scheme of colonial life. And, um, so, so, you know, the and in the title, right, the, the idea of colonial law and um, the Victorian imagination, um, it's really about how both of those two, um, both the law and literature function in relation to one another. So as two distinct things, but also taken collectively as operating within a single kind of shared ideology, right? So um, both the law and literature, um, we can think of them both separately um, or individually, right, but we can also think of them as a kind of collective way of organizing and, um, and, and governing colonial life, right, and so, um, and central to both the law and literature is, of course, the idea of representation, right, the ways in which, um, you know, the, the law and literature provide a mode of representation for colonial subjects and for their English counterparts. Um, so how do you represent yourself? How do you seek representation? Again, um, I think the and is, is meant to do some, some um, double work there, right? As, as both, you know, conjoining these two um, contexts, but also providing a kind of mechanism for separating them as well.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, now uh, I would like to go in the book. You are um the cases you have taken from the JCPC, the Judicial Committee of Privy Council. uh for those not familiar with the colonial history of the subcontinent, could you tell us uh, what was this and why was this so important in the colonial history of the subcontinent?
0: So the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council was um created during the colonial era as the final court of appeals for colonial cases. And this was of course, not just the subcontinent, but throughout the colonial, the British colonial world. Um, and in fact, the colonial, um, cases, or sorry, the JCPC continues to hear cases, um, from, from the Caribbean, even, uh, you know, up until the present moment and from certain jurisdictions within, um, the UK as well. So, um, in particular, right now they're they're sort of most relevant in terms of deciding some of the um, capital punishment cases arising from the Caribbean, um, and it's of course a, a kind of ironic legacy of colonial rule that uh, capital punishment has been outlawed within the UK, but continues to exist um, in in the Caribbean. And so um, the the judicial committee of the Privy Council is still in kind of this this odd position of. Um, you know, deciding uh, cases that, that are, are in some ways very much legacies of that colonial encounter um, and the ways in which uh, colonial law has been sort of grandfathered into to Caribbean law in, um, in particular ways that it hasn't been in, in English law. Um, so the, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council actually was originally a, a kind of medieval institution, a, a group of advisors to the sovereign, and um, that emphasis on monarchical rule and, so, you know, uh, forms of absolute sovereign, sovereignty uh, really kind of began to wane in Britain um, at roughly the same time um, as colonization uh, gained ground. Right. So um, what we see is that institutions like the JCPC found kind of a new life in the colonial environment um, where, um, you know, there was this sort of uh, emphasis on a kind of absolute sovereignty where um, cases would be heard by a a body within the the colonial metropole in London, right? Um, And the judges would have very little to do with the everyday life of the colonial subjects whose faith they were... Deciding so, um, so there's this sort of model of sovereignty that's developing in the colonies um, that is happening concurrently with a very differently evolving mode of sovereignty that's happening in in the UK at the same time, right? So what I suggest is that the JCPC was central to establishing these two historical trajectories one that was sort of leading backward towards the medieval era in the colonies and one that was uh you know in opposition to uh, the simultaneous narrative that was leading forward towards modernity um, in the metropolitan context. So, so you know, the JCPC was sort of a crucial um, way of navigating that division between these two simultaneously unfolding legal histories that were working in opposite directions or, or moving towards opposite directions. Um,
1: does your research indicate why was this happening? Why is in one way... I mean, um, the the, the sovereign is the same person, but why is this one hand you are going backwards or towards another system and the other way you are going through absolutely the contrast of it? Why is this contradiction? Does your research indicate the reasons for this?
0: So within the UK, the movement was towards more of a parliamentary democracy model, right? Um, which was really a sort of distributing of sovereignty among the the population. Um, whereas in India and in the colonies, um, there was much more a, a sense of a kind of vertical, um, hierarchical model of, of sovereignty that was not invested in distributing, you know, power across the, the population. So um, I think, you know, the colonial model functions uh, more efficiently as a kind of model of absolute sovereignty, where there is a sort of hierarchical vertical sense of rule. Um, and so I think it's really just a question of the ways in which these two sort of forms of, of governmentality were in, in, um, evolving in, in very different ways.
1: Okay. Um, now let's come to the literary part of this. And, and the, the book is analyzing these legal archives of the JCPC in uh, what is said is a distinctively literary fashion. I mean, uh, uh, what could be the justifications for this approach? Is there a direct correlation between these literary works or uh, are these, there are some uh, indirect correlations? Could you talk a little about those?
0: So it's not so much that there's a direct correlation in the sense that they both involve the same historical material or or, um, anything like that necessarily, but the correlation is more uh, thematic. So uh, what I do is I I select certain thematic concerns that are central to both the legal and the literary texts, and um, I read both archives in terms of, of, you know, the ways in which they approach those particular themes. So for example, um, in the case of um, something like Great Expectations and um, the legal case um, of Edel G. Byram G. um, The the question of criminality is central to both of those two instances. And um, again, in terms of you know, how I read these, I, I tend to read um, around that central issue of criminality. How did these two texts demonstrate, a, again, a kind of divergent pathway, right? So um, within the English novel, what we see happening is uh, a notion of criminality that really revolves around um, a kind of individual guilt, right? The the figure of Magwitch, who is, you know, the sort of unmistakably individual um, and, and quite, you know, characterful um, criminal versus in G, we have this sort of sense of collective criminality, right? And, and we see that carrying over again in the representation of criminality in confessions of a thug, for example, by uh, Philip Meadows-Taylor as well. So, how does the, the sort of theme of criminality get represented in both of these two contexts? Um, again, you know, how does um, the Indian context take that idea of criminality and, and make it collective, right? So that we see uh, Indian society as a whole uh, being, um, invoked as criminal, right? Um, in the case of Adelg, we see um, Adelg along with eighteen other criminal defendants being prosecuted for a single murder, right? So there's a sense of, you know, the crime not being the act of an individual agent, but rather a kind of collective, um, you know, um, scene. We also see the punishment, right, um, um, unfolding as you know a spectacle of terror rather than as a, a kind of um, model of rehabilitation so um, so I, I think the central concern was always how does this theme play out differently in these two places um, how does the fact of being um, a criminal in one context uh, differentiate? from the fact of being criminal in another context, right? Is there a different meaning associated with, with the idea of the criminal based in these two um, places? Right. And so how is that meaning constructed again? Is it narrative? Is it, you know, is, is the idea of a criminal itself always a particular narrative? Is it always a fiction? Is it always a matter of legal fact, right? These were, these were the kinds of, of questions that were always of interest to me.
1: And, and what was it? i mean, uh, could we make a generalization here and say that in in England there is uh, criminality is very individualized and in the subcontinents not the case i mean, could this generalization be can can it hold true
0: I think so yeah, um, I think that uh you know, in in not only the cases that I looked at, but but in in the you know literary representations as well, there's a general sense that the Indian criminal, and we see this, you know, even in, in collective uh, in collective criminality at the current moment, right? In terms of the ways in which criminality is is racialized, um, you know, to include large larger communities, right, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, the, you know, the, the assigning of guilt to collectives um, is very different in the racialized context, even in the present moment, than it is um, in terms of sort of the specificity of the singular um, culprit, right, that is the, the kind of cornerstone of, of the, um, you know, the the Western legal kind of principle, right? Uh, but that doesn't always play out when we when we talk about um, criminality within a kind of racialized context.
1: Yes, um, and um, uh, you, uh, there are two novels: where the Great uh, Great Expectations, and then there's a novel of uh, Philip uh, Meadows Taylor. Uh, and I imagine uh, this book was also written for the English audience. It's written in English. Uh, Do you think uh, this uh, was maybe a sociological project of of preparing the colonizers for for the kind of violences that would actually happen? Uh, Or... uh, uh, what? Uh, how did uh, this have? Uh, th- how did it, this play out uh, for th- for the readers who who would be reading something like uh, Confessions of a Thuggy? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, Confessions of a Thug was an enormously popular book. It was read by by everybody, including Queen Victoria herself. Uh, so it really was a, a very well received novel. Uh, it's kind of you know, disappeared from the canon over the intervening centuries and, and very few people, I think, read it now. But, uh, you know, this is an example of exactly what I was talking about a moment ago in terms of the very word thug, right? Uh, the, the way in which it has a kind of um, association with racialized criminality, even now, um, it originates from the Indian context, um, you know, the, the idea of, of the thug who practiced um you know a form of hereditary criminality that was discovered by uh, you know a colonial administrator W. H. Sleeman um, and assigned to a group of uh, you know hereditary uh, uh, you know what he called thugs right the 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 hereditary criminal and uh, in the book Meadows Taylor describes sort of armies numbering in the thousands of these these thugs um, and of course you know. Radhika Singha has, for example, done done a great deal of research on the history of thuggy and the sort of problematic um, conclusions that Sleeman reached. But um, in, in Confessions of a Thug, um, there's very much a sense of the ever-present threat of Indian criminality. And th- on the one hand, that was localized uh, in India, uh, for the British reading public. But on the other hand, by virtue of the novel, it became a very intimate fear for, uh, the British readers themselves as well. Right. So, um, the idea that, uh, you know, the Indian criminal was everywhere within the intimate spaces of their own imaginations, right. That, uh, I believe, began to seep into a kind of cultural fear, right, to produce a a kind of cultural fear of, um, you know, the spectacle of Indian criminality and and the ways in which that criminality was just sort of everywhere, um, and in, in Fleeman's narrative as well, you know, um, was was impossible to to um, it was always impossible to tell who might be a thug. Right. That it could be anyone. It was a secretive cult. It was a you know, it, they, the thugs could be drawn from any ranks of Indian society. Um, they could be Hindu, Muslim. Uh, there was really no distinguished distinguishing characteristic that might identify a thug to, you know, the the British um Viewer, so uh, you know the again. I think this worked to create the idea that um, Indian criminality was sort of um, a universal aspect of Indian society at large, Um, and the thug could really be anywhere, um, and it could be anywhere, uh, anyone at any time. So I think that that general sort of sense of fear became a defining characteristic of. you know, uh, interaction between the the British reading public and and the idea of the Indian as such. Um, um,
1: uh, If we move on to the second case, which is an 1863 case, um, you have uh, mentioned uh, an interesting quotation by uh, John Stuart Mill, um, who is an English philosopher and a member of the British Parliament, um, and his views on Hinduism. um i am interested to know why was he interested at all in 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 in, in, in uh, religion of the subcontinent
0: so I think that was actually James Mill um but it was uh James Mill's uh, history of British India mm-hmm. and I think that's the the one that you're referring to but I'm not I'm not positive um, on that
1: Um but- Let's let's go on and I'll I'll check back on this and let, you know. no problem.
0: But but yeah, I mean um, James Mill wrote the history of British India um, as a kind of justification for British rule, uh, British colonization in India, uh, and you know one of the sort of main premises of the history, which on the one hand was intended to be expository, right, to to reveal something and 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 to you know tell a series of facts. Um, a, you know, a history in that, in that concept of it. Um, but at the same time, very much produced a narrative, right. Was always a fiction in and of itself. Um, and so the history of, of British India uh, represented Indian society as sort of invariably um, incapable of producing a viable Modernity, right? So, um, again, going back to this idea of the two divergent notions of history, um, within Mill's representation, Indian history was always um, sort of tainted at the outset so that it could never move forward. It would always inevitably move backward, right? Um, So, there was a sort of backward leaning trajectory mapped out. Um, for Indian history by mill and and by other sort of orientalist um, h- historians, right? that would represent the subcontinent to itself, right? so um so for many Indians also reading uh, Mill's history, right? there was a sense of of the the kind of facticity of the history, which obviously has been contested over the years. But um for the British reading public, again, produced a kind of reality, right? And um, that reality was very much a, a kind of um, a representation that lent itself to being intervened in. So the the sort of inevitable um, deterioration of Indian society necessitated colonialism as a kind of intervention to, you know, reroute Indian history into modernity um, as, as a kind of charitable kind of intervention, right? Um, so, again, it, it became a kind of justification for, for why colonialism was necessary and the ways in which it was um, able to, um, you know, reroute history into modernity when otherwise it was headed directly backward.
1: Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, I, I This is my mistake. I, I confused the two. This is about James Mill. Um, uh, but James Mill's book is, is different. Uh, how do do you think it was being read uh, generally uh, as compared to a novel within the british public at that time or do you think this was more of a specialized literature which is now relevant for post colonial uh, societies but wasn't at the time
0: i think it was uh, popularly read um and and served a a really sort of um foundational uh, role in in representing India to uh, British readers uh so I think that uh, you know it wasn't a world in which they could obviously turn on the news and 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 you know <laughs> and access a, a kind of 24-hour um, coverage so they depended much more on on books to um to gain a, a kind of familiarity with with a place right and so um I think that Mill's text was instrumental in creating certain ideas about India that were then filtered into the various narratives that, um, that represented India. So whether those were legal or literary narratives, they, um, you know, again, kind of arose from a same shared kind of ideology about India. Um, and Mill's text was one of, one of the, the kind of fundamental um, foundational
1: texts that, that made that vision possible. Um, I would like, like to now come back to the case, uh, which is Ramaswamy Ayer versus uh, Venkata, Venkatesh Achari, um, where um, uh, the book claims that it reshaped Indian temporality and history. Uh, can you tell us what you mean by reshaping Indian temporality and history?
0: So in that case, uh, it was a long, a sort of centuries-long dispute between uh, various uh, competing sects of, of uh, temple priests and uh, you know their rights to perform certain religious services at, at the temple and uh, one of the the kind of hallmarks of this the way in which the this case evolved over its years of litigation is that um, the various courts, considered different historical evidence um, in each iteration, right? So that in one iteration, um, the court was willing to consider sort of, you know, a long kind of almost folkloric or or mythological um, rendition of events. Um, In another iteration, the court, and and this is sort of the the iteration that I focus on, the court um, set a historical date and said, we will only consider um, the narrative beyond this particular historical date. Um, And so in setting a particular historical date and considering the narrative from that date forward, that had the effect of normativizing a particular notion of time and its relationship to narrative that made possible only a a particular conclusion. So so the way in which the narrative was situated temporally and the kinds of evidence that were allowed into the narrative based on a particular understanding of history work to shape the outcome of um, the opinion, right? of, Of the decision. So how we view history in some sense determines the kinds of narrative conclusions that we can reach. Um, and that was kind of the point that I was making in that particular instance.
1: And, and why were they so divided uh, if the conclusions of the court case was linked to the temporality, the the, the, uh, the timeline? So as to say, why were they constantly divided over this line? So, so this
0: particular case was was a little bit complicated in the sense that it had gone back and forth many times. Um, so there were um, a, a series of appeals and um, you know the outcomes were were not consistent between them. So uh, depending on which outcome you started with, um, you would have a, a, you know a different sort of narrative. The um, you know the the sort of crucial, Um, part about this particular case was that um, sorry, I'm just glancing at at the book, but um, was really the idea that um, religious time and um, historical time were, again, presented as kind of two different um, concepts, right? So, um, So the argument that I'm making broadly is that Indian time was relegated to religious time and British colonial time was seen as occupying the space of historical time, right? So um, really what ended up happening in the cases was that um, British temporality sort of arbitrarily set the beginning point, right? And what ended up happening was that um, there was a kind of neutrality assigned to the historical conceptions of the judges, right? So that um, colonial law was put in a position to solve the problem of Indian historical time, right? Um, And to solve the problems that arose out of the muddled nature of religious time. Um, And so the muddled nature of religious time, again, sort of along the same lines as Mill's argument, could only result in a kind of... um, Um, you know, a backward looking sort of a religious temporality, right? Whereas legal historical time could extricate the solution out of that muddled religious time and reorient it towards a a more sort of modern um, real or fact based notion of time, right? So it's not so much that the two narratives, um, it, it, it's not so much that the Indian narrative and the English narrative were always at odds with one another. It's just a question of how the judges sort of represented their own interventions as creating English time as the time of m- modern legal solutions and Indian time as the time of, um, you know, again, backward, inevitably religious, um, you know, kind of mythological or folkloric time. Does that makes sense.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Uh, Yeah, it definitely does. Um, You compare this to um, Wilkie Collins' novel, The Moonstone, um, which is also uh, based in the subcontinent and uh, the defeat of Tipu Sultan. I would like here to talk uh, a little about the interesting quotation, which is uh, th- which you have used about uh, Todorov and the detective novel, and uh, I would like to quote. Uh, you say the till the theology of the detective novel inevitably works to ensure that a detective and the society affected by the crime remain above the fray. Likewise, the judicial acts I discuss in this volume occupy a similar position of immunity. Um, can you elaborate a little, uh, which does lead back to what you just uh, talked about, uh, the, 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 the difference in time and what the judges are doing?
0: Yeah, this this relates both to what I was saying just a moment ago and also to the, the point that I was making earlier in terms of, um, you know, the collectivity of, of Indian criminality and the individuality of, of British criminality or English criminality. And um, so one of the points that Todorov makes is that there is a kind of neutrality or... Um, you know the the reading public is sort of implicitly innocent, right? Um, and that is by virtue of the fact that they are reading to decipher the individual guilt of the particular criminal, right? And so um, if the if the criminal is an individual, everybody else reading the detective novel must be, you know implicitly innocent. Right. And so that I argue created a kind of notion of social or collective innocence, um, for the British reading public. Right. Um, that was again, very different from the kind of collective criminality of, um, of the Indian subject. Uh, so the idea of the, the reading public being neutral, right. Or in some sense objective, this is a really, I think, close analogy to the way in which the JCPC also functioned. Right. So the judges of the judicial committee were in London uh, again, far removed from the lives of the the cases that they were considering and um, often using forms of law um, with, with which they had no familiarity. Right. So um, you know, local laws in India or Nigeria or Kenya or anywhere else, right, throughout the empire, um, really had no kind of um, personal significance to to the justices on the Judicial Committee. And yet they were governing over these, these cases as though they were sort of um, able to objectively decide the law, right? But of course, the law is itself always a narrative and the interpretive strategies of the law are also always narratively produced. So, um, so what we have is this sort of ironic way in which the the justices um, view themselves and are viewed socially as kind of neutral or objective readers. Right. Um, But what I argue is that in fact they are, writers as well right so they're not simply consumers of these these texts these legal texts but they're also authoring um opinions that really shape the lives of the characters that they're reading about right so in a way they're writing the narrative that um becomes the kind of script of colonial life um and so um it's not a sense in which, as Todorov is describing, right, that there is, and and he obviously is critical of this notion too. But um, it's not a sense in which they're simply um, bystanders, uh, but they're also sort of producers as well.
1: Um, I would like to come back and the ethical implications of this, but uh, to move on to the to the third case. Um, for, for those who are not very familiar with the subcontinent, uh, uh, may not be aware of how important adoption was, uh, was a theme in, in the colonial rule of the British. Um, I've always been curious why, why is this such an important theme? Uh, can you tell us uh, why that's the case? So adoption was particularly
0: important in the case of uh, local rulers, uh, who who local sovereigns who died without um, natural born heirs. So um, during the height of colonial expansion, um, in particular, there was a doctrine known as uh, Dalhousie's Doctrine of Lapse, which uh, essentially said that any local sovereign who died without a natural, a biological heir, right? Um, male heir would, um, cede their territory to the the colonial state. So adoption was critical to, uh, preserving lines of inheritance or contesting lines of inheritance as the case may be. Um, and you know who could inherit property and how and under what conditions was central to thinking about questions of adoption um, and the ways in which adoption rights were con- curtailed over the course of um, imperial rule. So um, you know if adoption was once a viable mechanism for um, inheriting sovereign rights and territories. Um, colonial rule intervened in that. And what I suggest is that this had kind of financial implications. And of course, you know, um, you know, political implications, but it also had um, implications um, within the affective realm, right? Um, Kinship, love, affection. These were all impacted by the way in which adoption uh, was governed under colonialism.
1: Uh, and and for this, you take the example of Begum Sumru, who is a very fascinating character. Can you tell us a little about her and why is she uh, a person of interest here?
0: So she was, uh, you know, one of these uh, local sovereigns who had a, a territory in northern India um, outside of Delhi, and she uh, was quite powerful and quite a quite an interesting figure. Um, Often described, you know, as sort of masculine in her uh, appearance and in her interactions with the with the the colonial government, and um, so she was a sort of um, you know interesting figure for a lot of a lot of reasons, you know, questions of gender and sexuality, questions of um, you know political. Um, intrigue uh, you know in terms of the kinds of um, treaties and uh, alliances that she formed with the colonial state um, but also uh, because she inherited her own territory from her partner um, Walter Reinhardt who um, again was a kind of mercenary who acquired his property you know and um, through his own sort of um, personal dealings with the the local um, Indian sovereigns, and um, so she she administered this this large ter- territory, and uh, was not, you know, did not have a biological heir, and so she attempted to um, will her property to her adopted son, who was actually, you know, a. a, a a descendant of Walter Reinhardt biologically, um, but was but was within her own lifetime sort of important to her as a kind of adopted son. And the the British state, sort of you know the colonial state, intervened and and sort of dismantled the adoption rights um, of her son to inherit her territory and um, took go over the land themselves. So she was sort of. Um, both a really compelling figure, um, but one who was ultimately very tragic in in you know the outcome of her son's sort of struggle. There was a long legal struggle to regain control of the territory. Um, he moved to England. Ultimately, um, w- was married into to British high society, and you know shortly thereafter diagnosed as mad, um, and he died a very very sad. Life um, in the end, so so she was, you know, ultimately quite a tragic figure.
1: Um, and you compare uh, this case with Eliot's Silas Marner. Can you tell tell us a little on why did you choose this novel to compare with Begum Sumru? So,
0: what I wanted to show was a sense um, of how. Eliot's novels, many of which feature kind of adoption as a central theme, the ways in which adoption is represented in um, almost purely affective terms within the, the space of the British novel. Right. So uh, much more sympathetically and um, as serving sort of um, the goals of kinship and affection rather than sort of financial or political aims, as was always sort of the implicit um, narrative within the Indian legal um, cases, right? So, you know, um, Samru's affection for her child was never really, um, you know, at the forefront of these British legal cases, right? It was much more about sort of, um, you know, the the political aims and gains, right? Um, Whereas for the British reading public, there was much more of an emphasis on adoption as a kind of um, sign of affection. But what I also wanted to show was the way in which um, within Eliot's novels, you know, Daniel Deronda in particular, right, we see a kind of, um, failure of adoption and of kinship and, and, you know, so so forth as well, um, to, to sort of satisfy those, those goals. And, um, and so in a lot of ways, Samru is kind of a departure from the overall trajectory of the book, which kind of maps out, um, sort of the ways in which colonial law routed Indian, um, acts as kind of um you know stunted right and in this instance samru provides a kind of alternative to even somebody like orwell's i mean sorry uh elliot's um characters and in her capacity to sort of envision adoption along different lines or more progressive lines than some of some of elliot's characters are ultimately able to do so i wanted to present kind of a a sense of um complexity right that it wasn't always that um, the the British novel sort of provided an escape route for you know for, for its own British characters while um, the, the colonial law sort of rendered um, the Indian subject somehow voiceless right um, and so I wanted to, to sort of um, complicate that that narrative as well okay.
1: um, and uh, this comparison uh, between uh, the literature and uh, the practice of justice uh, is is for me inherently very critical of the justice that is being practiced, because because it, it seems as if that the GCPC is is creating narratives, is creating norms that uh, do not correspond to the realities, and is is, is really about things that do not uh, have um, any source in the society that it is being practiced. Is is this interpretation correct or am, am I far away from what you were trying to say?
0: You yeah, know, I think that's correct. I mean, this goes back to the idea that the JCPC was really, you know, sort of deciding cases that really had no, no um, kind of, real life bearing on their own worlds right so um, there was a kind of you know sense of being removed from from the action which you know was was interpreted as a kind of you know as lending a, a kind of authenticity or objectivity to to the rulings but um i think you know the other kind of important point to consider is that what we take to be fact is already a process of interpretation, right? So, um, you know, the kind of facts of of a case, um, and this is kind of the point I was trying to make earlier, too, about where you start the historical narrative, right? The facts are already produced contextually. Um, There's not really, I think, a sense of a fact that can be extricated from a narrative, right? Um, So, the facts themselves emerge out of a complex network of narratives, which include things like, you know, Mill's History of British India, right, or the various novels that, um, you know, that, that represent India, like Confessions of a Thug, or, um, you know, the the JCPs um, own interactions, maybe personally, with colleagues who have been in India. So there's always a context for. Um, what the JCPC would have taken to be fact. Um, And so it's not that somehow the justices were acting neutrally as they would have us believe, right? They were always already kind of part of a narrative um, context that guided their own opinions in a particular direction. Um, And so, to the extent that their own opinions emerged out of this narrative context, what I would call a literary context, um, they were always sort of, um, they were as guided by the the narrative presuppositions of their own ideological formation um, as they assigned in some sense to, the Indian cases they were deciding, right? So um, their own kind of ideological subtext always guided the opinions that they were ultimately able to generate.
1: And and this leads very nicely to my last question because um, even contemporary uh, subcontinent society is called very Victorian in the sense that we are constantly... Uh, Redefining our time and redefining what we are, um, uh, and this we see in in several countries of the subcontinent and, and not just India, and um, and it does lead to um, this ethical consider uh, considerations. Of for example, uh, in India, uh, if if not to mention the most controversial, I mean, roads and, and cities are constantly being renamed because of uh, of a history that is prior which is true history but which is and uh, which undoes in some way the, the aggressions of a particular community of a particular religion and uh, is, is this also related to, to the colonial um, um, as if, as if the, the, when the British left they, they, they inherently made us uh, adopt some of the practices of the colonial rule is, is this linked or do you think this um, this may also have other uh, reasons for, for, for being there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think history is always a kind of layering of narratives on top of one another. And it becomes really difficult to, to distinguish at a certain point, you know, the origins of a particular narrative. Um, Fact, factor of history, right, or product of history. So, is um, you know, is the the current um, you know government in India a product of colonial rule or of of you know a resurgence of Hindu nationalism? It's you know, all of those things are, I think, intertwined um, in in particular ways, right? Um, and it's it's very difficult to to sort of I think parse out which aspects of contemporary society are products of uh, colonialism and which are parts of, you know, other elements, to what extent are they always, you know, interwoven with one another from the outset? Um, I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but I think yeah. that...
1: No, no, it, it does, because uh, many historians, when uh, when they counter Hindu nationalism, um, they would go back and say, well, well you took this from a colonial discourse, like for example, a British person says it and that's why you're claiming that this, is a, um, this belongs to a particular community and not the other. So for example, you wouldn't find in, in texts which are not in English, which are uh, written in different languages. And uh, I, I, I'm imagining that this is also our inheritance of the, the Victorian time that uh, in some ways still lives on in the subcontinent. Or would you say that's not the case?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that search for origins is in a way a kind of, you know, a search for kind of faulty origins is also a, a kind of legacy of Victorianism, right? The, the sort of lingering effects and, you know, just as the Victorians got a lot wrong, I think contemporary um, you know, contemporary efforts to, to sort of look back to some sort of golden path, past, right, um, are often misreading um, the the history that they're they're claiming. And so, you know, this this um, an instance of this is uh, is something that I discuss in in the book in terms of the um, the the temple doors of Somnath in in. Um, in uh, Wilkie Collins' text, right? That's sort of, um, you know, the ways in which the novel kind of rewrites the the story to focus on um, Tipu Sultan, but in, in you know, and the ways in which sort of um, contemporary Hindu nationalists have kind of claimed those, those, um, you know, the, the, you know, origins of the temple, um, you know, legacies and so forth, right? And so, you know, of course there's always, there's always misrepresentations um, <laughs> and the extent to which we can blame them on the Victorians. I think, you know, it, it's, it's not something that I, I'm really, um, you know, a specialist <laughs> in determining. But, but I think that that sort of methodology of searching for origins and, um, and using sort of dubious interpretive strategies to arrive at them <laughs> is definitely a, a legacy of the Victorians.
1: Yeah. Um, um, I would all, like always like to end with um, knowing about your future projects. What are you working on? Uh, what can we expect from you to read? So I'm
0: currently working on um, a book project that reads contemporary uh, post-colonial fiction um, alongside kind of 19th century and and onward um, legal legal cases so I look at how these colonial legal formations are kind of still present in contemporary fiction but also in contemporary law as well Um, so that's that's kind of the the next project that's very much in its kind of nascent stages
1: (laughs) thank you thank you so much for being there and talking to me And I look forward to read more from you.
0: Thank you so much, Gargi. It was a pleasure speaking with you.